This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We're going to break it down and set the Business Week agenda, Lisa Abramowitz, with none other than Dave Wilson. He joins us from New Jersey, the stocks editor for Bloomberg, author of the chart and the stock of the day. He'll be with us throughout the afternoon. All right, Dave, the last two days, if Carol Masser were here, she would say, whoa this has been a sell-off, oh a tech-driven sell-off. What have you seen? It certainly has. I mean, what's interesting about today, though, is at least you've seen some up and downs in mm-hmm. the stocks. I mean, yesterday it was sort of fell off a cliff in the afternoon uh, and didn't keep falling or didn't stop falling until the end of the day. I mean, we've seen a lot of back and forth today. You know, at one point, Apple got below $2 trillion in market value because the shares fell far enough for that. But as we speak, it's actually back above that threshold, uh, down just about 2% at the moment. uh, And that translates into a value of $2.02 trillion, at least for the moment. Uh, And looking at the day for Apple, I mean, this stock was down at one point more than 8%. And it's a similar story in Tesla, which, you know, has had an even tougher week, arguably, than Apple, just in terms of the magnitude of the declines. You know, at the moment, it's just off three-tenths of a percent. Nothing going on with this stock, right? Well, think again. I mean, just look at where it has been today. You know, at one point, it was up 5% and change. And at another, it was down more than 8.5%. So there's definitely a lot of, shall we say, intraday volatility being mixed in with this general weakness of tech stocks. And Dave, that was exactly the point that I wanted to raise. What are we looking at here? Is it really risk off or is this a big tech shakeout by some options trader, <clears throat> SoftBank, that's been rumored? Or is this, uh, you know, what, what, what is this? <laughs> well, it's gone beyond rumored considering that the Financial Times and the Wall Street right. Journal have reported that SoftBank had, had bought billions of dollars of call options. Basically, they were looking for uh, tech stocks to move higher and they wanted to take full advantage. Now, they certainly own uh, a lot of tech shares and related companies themselves. Uh, that they were looking to, in essence, magnify their bet on the group. Now, then the other side of the coin is, you know, how does SoftBank stack up in relative to, say, some of the smaller uh, traders out there on, you know, the likes of the Robinhood app, you know, in terms of their movement into the option market? We actually had a story out about that, uh, you know, in the past day or so. Uh, and, and so you, know, you have to wonder what the source of you know, the declines that we're seeing is. But there, there does at least seem to be an option element. Bear in mind, if, if you kind of create an option contract and sell it to somebody, uh, you know, chances are you're going to buy the shares to offset the moves going forward in the options. You're hedging yourself if you're right. you know, a securities firm or whatever. And that really plays into arguably what we've been seeing in stocks lately. So, Dave Wilson, you've watched the markets for a time, and you've seen the Labor Day Friday before. 
this is a different sort of year for so many reasons. How much of this is seasonality, or do we just sort of throw everything out the window here in the anhistoric bliss of 2020? Well, it's interesting you bring that up, Jason, because, you know, if you talk to the folks at the Stock Traders Almanac or just going to run the numbers, you find out that September has historically been the worst month of the year for U.S. stocks. Now, everybody tends to focus on October, given what happened in 1929 and 1987. But September, uh, on balance, has been the worst month of the year. Uh, You know, if you just take it, say, going back to uh, World War II. And, And so what we're seeing now you know, arguably maybe the shape of the things to come this month, if history is any guide. Bonds didn't offer any kind of hedge to stocks today. What can we glean from that? You know, that is really, uh, you know, the, uh, the challenge. I mean, what do you do as an investor? You know, the idea that uh, you know, on, on one of our podcasts, we, we talked to Paul McCulley, uh, late of PIMCO, and you know, he basically said that, uh, you know, if, if you're still 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and you think that's going to, you know, be a hedge, well, maybe it's not going to work out in the future the way it has, given how low yields are. And memory serves, it's the What Goes Up podcast, if I'm not mistaken, Mike Regan and Sarah Ponzek uh, exactly having right. that conversation uh, with Macaulay. What? So, you know, things have changed, no question, uh, with the, the rebound that we've seen in stock. Yeah. With you know how low bond yields are and therefore how high prices are, I mean you, you got to wonder how things kind of balance off each other going forward. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Really appreciate it as always. You'll be back a little bit later on, three thirty to be exact, with your chart of the day and the accompanying song plus your stock of the day to round out the week. Right after the close of trading, what do you make of the bond side of this, Lisa Bromowitz? I don't know. Today was super confusing. I'm going to be really honest. Super confusing. So confusing. I mean, was this jobs report good? Was it bad? I mean, it was much better than expected. But then you dig under it, and there are a lot of question marks. There are questions about temporary workers added by the census. There are questions about uh, permanent uh, permanent layoffs that are increasing the proportion of the workforce that really has no job, not just is uh, furloughed for a period of time. I don't know. I don't know what to make of all of this. Yeah, we're going to get into the jobs picture with Becky Frankowitz. She's been with us before. She's the president of Manpower Group uh, out in the Midwest. And, you know, I think we've seen the shape of work change. We talked about the shape of the market. We've seen seen the shape of work change. And I think we're going to get a better sense of that after Labor Day, although – it may be a little bit delayed because, as you and I very well know, Lisa, as parents, school, a little bit different uh, this time around. Are your and, kids actually going to physical school? Uh, not yet, and maybe in a hybrid way, but still remains to be seen. They're starting online in the next week or so, but it's all very up in the air. Mine are not going back for the rest of this year. We're part the of the Success of Academy this uh, calendar network. year. Yeah, for calendar the calendar year. year. Yep, yeah. for the calendar year. Oh, so we had a yeah, family. We had a big I mean, Bloomberg story on that yesterday. Yeah, I mean, we had a family meeting last night where wow. we discussed how we're going to make sure that everybody gets out of the of our home every day. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it's a serious issue. How do you motivate it, to leave your home? Totally. And not just be in pajamas all day. Well, I mean, not me, obviously. Right. I would never do that. Ever. No, absolutely not. Yeah, that's unimaginable. Um, <laughs> but there is this issue of can you have a really robust, productive workforce if kids are remote learning or not in school 
or some combination thereof. It's a huge, huge economic issue. So we're going to talk about that and much more. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, let's dig in a bit to Jobs Day. Uh, excited to do that with our own Yelena Shalecheva. She's back home. And by home, I mean our home studio, our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Aww. studio. Yelena is, of course, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. So, Yelena, a busy day, an appropriate day probably to find your way to the office to talk with the team, at least virtually, <laughs> and try and figure out what is going on in the land of the jobs report. What would you make of it? Feels so good here uh, yeah. in the studio. Let me tell Aww. you, very comfy. So, uh, yeah, obviously a strong payrolls report, and uh, we saw another solid print in payrolls. Uh, we saw an, an unexpectedly large decline in the unemployment rate, as well as uh, an increase in participation rate, which I should also note, because I think uh, the strength of the latest report is probably uh, uh, actually due to uh, people coming back to the labor force uh, as they uh, don't receive uh, the uh, unemployment benefits anymore. So those um, top up uh, $600 that expired at the end of July likely encouraged some Americans to get back and look for a job, and uh, they were lucky to uh, land a job or just come back to their previous uh, place of employment. Having said that, I'm not uh, arguing that we need to discontinue any stimulus uh, and any fiscal support to the labor market. It's still required, and it just needs to be very well targeted and oriented to those people who are really struggling and cannot get a job just simply because their jobs are not there anymore. So I think it's it's very important to make that distinction. So uh, looking forward, I think that uh, the um, progress in the labor market will slow down a little bit. Uh, we are entering that phase uh, when uh, seasonal jobs usually start picking up because of back-to-school season, because of holiday season. And I think that this year we may not see uh, that much strength. So that means the reported numbers will probably be negative uh, in uh, some months ahead. Yelena, I want to dig under the headline numbers. We saw a disappointment when it comes to the jobs added in the private sector. We've heard from a lot of big companies that have cut thousands of jobs. But on the public sector, there was that boost to the overall number based on a temporary hiring of census workers. Can you square that and give a sense of how much of a boost that gave the numbers that will eventually dissipate after the September 30th census deadline? So it's in the uh, vicinity of 200 to 300,000 and uh, that number will stay elevated throughout the months of September. This is actually, uh, usually it's a huge number uh, relative to overall payrolls this time because of uh, what is happening in the labor market and the, uh, the pace of monthly gains we see. This is relatively small. But uh, yes, you're right. This temporary boost will disappear. It, it is temporary and uh, that will create another um, like minor, but uh, still a downward pressure on overall pace of uh, hiring. So, Yelena, you know, one of the things I'd, I love asking you about is sort of some of the other data that you guys are looking at to figure out 
and and sort of separate some of the signal from the noise around jobs. We've had a lot of jobs data this week. Are there other economic indicators you're looking at, maybe some higher frequency type stuff that gives you an even more uh, robust sense of the jobs picture and the employment picture? Sure. Like, we are looking at high-frequency indicators. And, uh, you know, like uh, like uh, you said, that gives a better sense uh, to where the economy is going. I think that growth is flattening. So we will see a significant uh, boost to Q3 GDP to the third quarter. But after that, growth will, will uh, start flattening. You know, I'm not saying that we will see negative prints uh, in terms of uh, GDP growth or payrolls right away. Uh, but I think that the initial recovery will, will start to fade. So looking at uh, some data still from the uh, employment report, so if you look at uh, the duration of uh, unemployment, that is picking up. So if you look at people leaving the labor force, so from unemployed into out of the labor force, that number is still significantly high. So it's in the vicinity of 3 million people a month, uh, people who just, you know, were unemployed and they are just simply not looking for a job anymore. Right. So we're going to see this uh, uh, different statistics affecting the overall labor market picture. We're going to start talking about labor skills atrophy. We're going to start talking about lower living standards and things like that. That is still coming despite all this uh, great jobs data. Just real quick here, Yelena, I'm wondering if the momentum that we're seeing, the better than expected jobs reports, justifies the view that perhaps a, another round of fiscal support from Washington isn't required. It is required. It is required. And I will say it again, it is absolutely required. So yes, we, did see, we didn't get it the first two times. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get it the first time. The level of, un, of unemployment is absolutely uh, high by any standard. And uh, only half of those people who lost jobs in the crisis came back the other half will be very slow to come back. So we do need this fiscal stimulus to uh, provide that bridge over the health crisis and into the better times ahead. All right. Yelena Shalecheva, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg Economics Senior U.S. Economist there back in our home studio, the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Joining us on Jobs Day, really appreciate her time on such a busy day. We know she and the team uh, had a heck of a week trying to make sense of all this because – we are all trying to make sense of this, Lisa. It yeah. is the employment picture is muddy, don't you think? Well, I mean, the numbers swing by millions. Yeah, you know, the, the the estimates swing by millions. It's really hard to get a read on it, and that makes it very difficult to know whether a positive or a negative uh, surprise. How to interpret that in markets, right. which are kind of doing their own thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, doing their own thing, to say the least. All right, we're going to keep track of that. Talk more about jobs a little bit later on in the program. This is Bloomberg. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Lisa Bromowitz here on a Friday afternoon, a holiday Friday, headed into the weekend. Got a nice game for you to play. It's all part of the politics issue, the election issue, special double issue of Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands. But this is the one you really need to go online and play. Ryan Teague back with political reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from the nation's capital. Choose your own election ending. What's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, RTB, this is quite, (laughs) quite a project. How do you even sort of start this? Walk us through your process. 
Uh, yeah, well, I was a big fan of those Choose Your Own Adventure books when I was a kid. Yeah, and who wasn't? So as we were yeah. trying to game out um, what might happen on election night, I thought this just feels exactly like that. You know, there's just so many variables that um, a lot of the people that I talk with who normally try to make projections of turnout or what, what they've just given up. They've said that it's just there is no possible way to know exactly what's going to happen. So what we did was we uh, walk you through a series of questions that you can answer about what things might or might not go wrong. And then uh, as that unfolds, we show you what would be the likely outcome of those different things. So have you slept since making this? (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, actually, a lot of things can go wrong and it's still okay. It kind of depends on how you define constitutional crisis. Um, because that's not what I want to hear, by the way, that, by the way, that's going to be the money quote of this show today. Like Ryan, you are always good for a line, but that one is both terrifying and amazing. Well, it's true though. Like the constitution is just a Rube Goldberg contraption of competing interests and things that don't always make sense. And we have things that you could conceivably call a constitutional crisis on a regular basis, like the government shutdown, like, The, the Constitution doesn't have a way out of that. And so we have the government shut down. But, you know, kind of things go on. Um, a real constitutional crisis would be one where we just have absolutely no resolution or where the resolution that we get is just so undemocratic that it is bonkers and, and people are mad about it. And that's the one, if you play this game just the right way, you can end up with either Mike Pence or Kamala Harris as president. Right, right. I mean, it is sort of fascinating and, and a real... Um, civics lesson i mean there's there's a little bit of this that is to to use another thing from uh at least rtbs in my respective childhoods lisa's much younger is like there's like a schoolhouse rock uh sort of element to this of like there's like a demented version to some extent of like how you end up with certain scenarios with certain people i mean you do learn a lot about kind of line of succession and all these uh these variables that I think we, we've we never really thought about, honestly, Ryan. Well, you know, if you look at the, the, the framers of the Constitution, and we talk a lot about how smart they were and how great the system was that they came up with, but there were a couple of things that they did that are mistakes. I mean, if you look at the Seventh Amendment, it says that you can have a jury trial on anything worth more than $20. Well, $20 yeah. was the price of a cow. You know, they didn't know about inflation, so they wrote $20 right into the Constitution. Um, so it's kind of the same way. I mean, they designed the vice president to be kind of like the runner up in in the uh, presidential election. Right. And then the first time they had like a real competitive election, they said, "Whoa, that was a bad idea. And they had to like pass an amendment in like 1800 to fix that. So there are a lot of things in the Constitution that they never really gamed out how they would work. And they couldn't have because they didn't even think that political parties would exist. And now that we have the system that we've inherited from them, there's some parts of it that have never been tested. And so I get into some of that in this, but a lot of it is really, you know, in-person voting could go really bad. Mail-in voting could go really bad. There could be a slow count. There could be long lines that there are all sorts of things that can go bad. If the margin of the victory for the candidate who's winning is big enough, none of that will matter. Yeah. If Just- it comes down to a single state and a very narrow margin, then you have a lot more possibility for trouble. 
I do have to say that the founders of the Constitution, when you said they didn't really get inflation, we kind of don't get it either. But I do want to ask going forward whether some of the officials, the election officials in states are looking at all of the problems that you outlined here and are looking to fix them in, in, an, in a way that you think is reliable uh, before the election. So absolutely. Um, Pennsylvania's uh, governor recently met with Philadelphia, where they've had the most problem with slow counts in the past. And they kind of had like a little workshop on how can we fix it just for Philadelphia? Because if, if Philadelphia's returns are coming in fast enough, then the rest of the state, you know, it will, will be fine. Um, and uh, they actually got like a nonprofit, like gave some money for them because the Congress is not giving any more money for uh, helping pretty much that ship has sailed. It doesn't look like they're going to give any more money to help with that. So um, so that's something going taking place in Pennsylvania. I know that in North Carolina, even though they had a, Republican legislature and a Democratic governor that were really at loggerheads. They were able to work through some of those issues. Uh, Wisconsin, similarly, the State Board of Elections, uh, kind of after that disastrous primary, has, has taken a really close look at some of those things. But some of these things are not, there's, there's just too much of a partisan divide over yeah. things like voter ID and ballot harvesting. And it, you're just, they're not going to come to a, a, a compromise on that likely before the election. And time is also running out. I mean, it's too late to buy new equipment because that stuff's already been bought and you wouldn't get here on time. Right. I mean, Ryan, the other thing that I think, and we were talking about this with the CEO of Vote America yesterday, is this idea that it's hard for us, especially in the year 2020 and our uh, reliance and our kind of being accustomed, I guess, to instant results to get our heads around this idea of we may not know on election night, we may not know the next day, we may not know the day after that. This could take some time. That's a very uncomfortable thing for people to really reckon with, it feels like. I think that in particular because of the candidate uh, candidates that we're dealing with here, um, Donald Trump's tendency to call everything a fraud or rigged um, and to undermine sort of, you know, civic institutions uh, is a thing that makes it particularly fraught. I think if we were looking at a race between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama and they were saying it might take a week for us to get results, I, I don't think that people would be freaking out quite as much. Yeah. Um, so that's where the, a lot of the concern comes from uh, uh, people who are not fans of the president worrying that he is going to somehow turn that to his advantage. Now, really, as, as you can see, if you follow through the, the game, there, it, he can say all kinds of things, and that could undermine confidence, and that could contribute yeah. to people not trusting the result. But the mechanisms are in place there for things to happen by certain dates. And right. so unless, like, the Republican Party in, you know, en masse, or a state legislature or something like that decides to really aggressively intervene based on the things that he says, it's really just yeah. rhetoric. Right, right. No, that's a really good point and, and a comforting one uh, at the end of the day. Ryan Teagbeckwith, thank you so much. It's a terrific piece of journalism, so much uh, in there. We really appreciate you bringing it to us. So check that out online and in the latest edition of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So the big question of the day, the week, and certainly as we head in to the post-Labor Day market is tech stocks. Were they too expensive? Are they still cheap? 
what's going to happen next? So many questions. We got the perfect person to talk about it with us, Lisa, and that's Ross Gerber, President and Chief Executive Officer of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, joining us on the phone from beautiful Santa Monica, California. Ross, how are you? It's been a while since we caught up. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for asking. You know, it's a going to be the hottest day of the year i think uh, ne- tomorrow but uh, it's a beautiful summer day yeah i i hear i've heard from a couple people in los angeles over the past couple of days in, in your general area that's going to be hot and i don't know dude you're in santa monica so i'm just saying no no like, it's supposed to be 110 at the beach tomorrow wow like okay. this has never happened in yeah my life. that is crazy that, that, that counts that, that counts. counts all right yeah no Let seriously like that's that's legit that's legit all right <laughs> Um, okay. That aside, uh, you know, it's cooling off. See what I'm doing here? Oh, God, uh, this is dreadful. Tank stocks. This is hard. <laughs> this is hard. Just stick with me. But seriously, what, what do you make of what we've seen over the past couple of days? Because it felt a little bit unanticipated, even though we had seen a massive run up. I just wonder through the lens that you look at the markets, what have you made of the past 48 hours? Cause they've been a bit nutty. Oh, I, I've been actually really happy about it. You know, there's nothing worse than a market that's just unrelentingly up, which starts to make me like really fear like a 2000 meltdown because I lived through it. And so corrections are an important part of the market. And the tech stocks got really ahead of themselves over the last couple of months. And, and we think their prospects look very good. But you know, paying 40 times earnings for Apple. I've owned Apple my whole life. It's traded between 15 and 18 times earnings up until recently. So you're essentially paying two times the historical valuation of Apple to be an investor today. And so to see these corrections actually brings me comfort because it means there's some sanity in the market. But we, we're just seeing a tremendous amount of liquidity out there right now. And, and so that should support stocks even at ridiculous valuations. All right, Ross. So we've seen in Tesla, there was about a 20% correction in the shares over three trading days. Now the shares are actually up on the day after having been down substantially. I mean, they're flopping all over the place. Right. Are things cooling enough to really justify that we are actually seeing sanity? Because if you look at the year-to-date gains, no. they're still yeah. nuts. Yeah, no, this is far from sanity. You know, we... You know, I hate to sound like, you know, sort of the old fuddy-duddy, but like, you know, we value things. And just because the markets move higher doesn't mean like we change the way we value things to justify the valuation. Really? Because it kind of seems like that sometimes. (laughs) A lot of people do do that. You've seen that with all of Wall Street with like huge price targets increases with Tesla, like right before they got $5 billion worth of stock to sell, right? And so like we we think of Tesla selling stock that probably is a sign, right, that the stock is very expensive. And so, like, Tesla is one of the best companies in the world, and it deserves a premium valuation. But I I think many stocks like Tesla are well ahead of themselves. I think uh, even deeper correction is necessary, and and it's good. And and really, when everybody's out there screaming that they want to buy stocks and they love stocks, that's just a bad sign for the markets, you know, typically. And so, Ross, what does the fall look like, and what are the catalysts for you to to make a move one way or the other to to add to certain positions or not? Is it just on a case by case basis, or are there more 
kind of macro things like, say, a presidential election or other things going on like a global pandemic that, depending on which way they go over the next 60, 90 days, are really going to deeply influence your behavior here? Yeah, I, you know, so on a macro level, I would say that I'm in the most conservative investment position I've ever been. And that's my allocation to stocks to bonds. So I literally have half my money out of the stock market right now. And the half I have in the stock market is heavily weighted in technology. And this has served us very well, actually, this year, um, this uh, approach, you know. But that being said, one of the reasons we're super conservative right now is because of the election. This is typically a weak time of the year for stocks. And then on top of the fact that earnings are going down, not up, for the S&P. And that looks like that will continue for another six months. And so with earnings going down and valuations going up, right, you've got an election and you've got a pandemic, which I think we're going to get through in the next six months, mostly, um, as far as having a much more normal life in the next six months. So I'm bullish on the world in certain scenarios and I'm bearish in others. So if we can get Biden to win the election, this will be one of the most bullish things for America I have seen in forever. Hold on a second. You You said a lot, and I want to break out some of it. Uh, Let's start with the allocations, the idea that you've gone uh, much more into bonds than stocks, if I hear you correctly. Are bonds really going to act as a hedge? Well, you know, we are very diversified in the bond market because, you know, corporate bonds typically don't act as a hedge when the economy goes bad, right? And governments do well. So let's say we have half our money in government securities and half our money in corporate securities on the bond side, because if things go bad, those government securities will be the hedge, you know. And then we have a very large gold position as well, probably the largest I've ever had. So we, we really look at it is, you know, we're not sure where things will be, you know, with a lot of things over the next couple months. I'm actually pretty bullish on solving coronavirus over the next year, but I'm not bullish on corporate earnings over the next six months. And so that means PEs get bigger, you know, over time, even if the market doesn't go higher. So my argument would be what would be the catalyst for the market going higher? It's either stimulus or more Fed printing money. You know, there's really the only catalyst Mm-hmm. that you have over the next six months. And so I, I'm looking for the election to be that sign. If Trump wins, I think it's going to be a difficult period of time. I think the social unrest will increase. I think it reminds me a lot of the late 60s. Yeah. And I just don't want to play that game. I just don't want to be in that game. Trump Ross, is like Nixon, un- but worse. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there because we got to get to some news. Always good to visit with you. You got to come back soon because uh, we love, love, love your insights. Ross Gerber, Gerber Kawasaki, joining us from Santa Monica. Stay cool. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it is Jobs Day after all, and amid all the talk of the market, certainly people are keeping a close eye on the employment picture. No one probably more so than Becky Frankowitz, the president of Manpower Group North America. She's back with us on the phone from Chicago. Becky, really nice to have you back here with Lisa and myself. So framing today's jobs report in sort of a longer term view of employment, which you take, you also have incredible uh, data about who's hiring, who's not, who's getting hired. What do you see out there? Synthesize it for us, both the data and the anecdotal. 
Yeah, so first, Jason, nice to, nice to talk to you. Hello, Lisa. Um, I'd say today's numbers show great progress to mending our labor market. You know, we have single-digit unemployment, the most positive we've seen since March, growth across critical sectors, big moves from retail, happy to see hospitality and leisure, which, you know, means food service, restaurants, and, and bars, basically, and always important manufacturing. And, and I think the big highlight from today is really important progress for furloughed workers. So more than half of those displaced during the pandemic are back at work. And, you know, that we have a long way to go, Jason. These are encouraging signs, you know, but a step forward starts the step. And this report was a nice step forward. But as you mentioned, you know, we, this data is backward looking and we track real time data and forward looking trends at Manpower Group. And, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to share a couple of the trends we're seeing come out of some um, research that we've recently done. All right, Becky, what are those trends? Yeah, so we're seeing employers hire for today and tomorrow. And the reason that's important is during the pandemic, at the height of the crisis, they were only hiring for today. You know, forward-looking was not what was happening. um, But we're seeing positive outlooks in terms of hiring intentions across industries. And at the same time, you know, employers are looking to the future and saying this is the dawn of a new next rather than the return to an old normal so we're seeing three trends emerge, Lisa, and the first is, I think, really interesting that, that most employers are anticipating a slower time to full recovery. And let me tell you what I mean. We surveyed over 8,000 American employers, and we just asked them how long they thought it'd take to be back to normal, um, it, their, their pre-pandemic hiring. And when we asked in April, 30% said, hey, they'd be back, you know, we plan to be back within a year. Now, when we asked in July, 66% said it's going to it's going to take that time or longer to be back to the pre-pandemic hiring. And so more companies are saying it's going to take at least a year or longer to be back for pre-pandemic. So that, that was a first um, and a big shift in a short period of time. Yeah, that is a big shift. And so how much, in your estimation, does this whole need – for flexibility and uncertainty around schools and maybe some either uneasiness or unwillingness around a commute. How much does that stick? Like how, how should we be thinking about that as both employers and employees? Yeah. So we're seeing, you know, we asked that question as well, because we know, I mean, Jason, you and I've talked about it probably, you know, six or eight months ago. We know that employees, so workers have been asking this kind of, for this kind of flexibility for a while. Employers haven't been, haven't been offering it. And so it's been a bit of the gift of the crisis. So in the same survey of 8,000 American companies, over a third plan to offer remote work and flexible hours, and almost 10% plan to offer 100% remote work to employees. And so this is accelerating a shift closer to what we know workers wanted and we've talked about from some time. Becky, what's going on with the younger cohort? And I've been looking at data that shows that the unemployment rates among the youngest group of workers is near 20%. And this is the area that has gotten hit particularly hard because younger kids, they come out of college, they come out of high school, and they go work in the service industry. Do you have any sense of how quickly that's improving? Yeah, so the service industry has been one of the hardest hits, as we know. And, you know, we saw a little bit of a second wave, Lisa, this week in in the travel airline specifically. And so that is impacting the younger generation. I think the other thing, you know, in our research that we heard from the Gen Zs, I think Gen Z 18 to 24 in the workforce, is that they're the most positive about going back in the office. 
So they see it as a place to socialize, to collaborate. It's how they navigate their careers. So to them, you know, this opportunity to learn in the office is important. And with still the flexibility to work from home a couple days a week. And so, you know, I was I was talking to some folks that work for us, and you know, you have a, a couple of young gentlemen who graduate from college living with a couple of their buddies, and they can't work from home. I mean, it's loud. They're in a two-bedroom apartment. Like they need a place to go. So, you know, we have the service industry impacting them, and we also have this need for a place to you know to go in and to work a couple days a week. Yeah. And how soon do you think it really, uh, we've only got about a minute left here, Becky, but how soon do you think it really affects sort of broader demographic trends in terms of where people live and the state of cities? I mean, I know those are big questions that we're all thinking about. Yeah, Jason. So, you know, like you, I'm sure I've heard of many people just picking up and moving their families back to where they're from or out of the city. What we know is that more people want to work remote a couple of days a week than want to work remote full time. And so there is still a a role for the office. Um, It's just not full time every day of the week. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, that it's interesting to hear you say that because you you carry a lot more sway and you have a lot more data in front of you. But anecdotally, I hear that a lot too. And and, and I do feel like it changes economies on the margins, but maybe not as radically uh, as some people think. Really good to catch up with you as always. Thank you so much, Becky Frankowitz, president of Manpower Group North America, joining us on the phone from Chicago. Uh, I feel like we're going to be living in a hybrid world, Lisa. Yeah, I think it's really hard to not ever go in the office. And I will say, you know, Becky was talking about younger people wanting a place to go. How about people with kids? Yeah, totally. Randomly throwing that out there just as a hypothetical. You know, (laughs) should somebody have that situation? You know, you're sitting, I believe, not sharing too much in your son's bedroom. I'm sitting in my daughter's (laughs) bedroom. So, yeah, an office. It doesn't sound terrible. It doesn't sound terrible. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, time for a Friday edition of the drive to the close. It's been a funky day on the markets, as you just heard Charlie Pellet break down. Let's break it down with Ryan Dietrich, senior market strategist for LPL Financial, back with us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, first of all, how are you? How are things in North Carolina? Hey, Jason. I'm, I'm glad to be back, and things are going well. You know, yeah. I mean, I technically, uh, Charlotte's on the border, so I do live in South Carolina right. just across the border. And, you know, school started this week doing the A-Day, B-Day thing. Kids are <laughs> slowly getting back into it. Parents are slowly getting back into it. But all in all, I think a little more normalcy. And honestly, I had two fantasy football drafts this week, so that made me feel good. You know, a little more normal getting back into the world here. All right, so we're going to talk about the markets, but I think Lisa and I both want to ask you, what is that like? What's the school thing like? Because we're both sort of on the verge of sending our kids back. Yeah, well, again, this was the first week that we did it, and yeah. it's uh, it's my daughter's in seventh grade, and it's kind of tough, right? you got to be six feet away from everybody. You wear the mask. Her friends are in other classes, so you don't see your friends during lunch. You don't see your friends during recess. You just stay with your family or your pod, I think yeah. is what they call it. So it's not ideal, but at the same time, um, you know, I think it's good for at least for my children to kind of get a little more normalcy by going back to school, even oh, yeah. if it is every other day. 
Yeah, so yeah. then they're home remote learning on the B days or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that was yesterday. It was a rough day. So, yeah, I, I, that's why I like coming to the office sometimes. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Brian, but, yeah, uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's been, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting lead-in to the Labor Day weekend. Hard to understand mm-hmm. a lot of things. Hard to understand the market. And I want to get your reaction of what we've seen this week. We saw the top blow off the big tech gainers of this year. And we really saw a rotation into some of the weaker uh, stocks. I'm thinking of the airlines in particular. Ford today is up. The banks, JP Morgan, up more than 1%. Uh, banks outperforming. Do you think that this is sustainable? Yeah, I mean, Lisa, you're right. And, and we do think it is, right? I mean, the tech stocks, I've come on to you guys all year saying we like growth, we like technology. Let's be honest, the NASDAQ 100 was 30% above its 200-day moving average. That's the most it's been in 20 years. I mean, those big-name tech stocks were stretched. That rubber band was stretched far. What we're encouraged by, though, is, yeah, they're pulling back, and they might pull back a little bit more. But, I mean, small caps, as we speak, are virtually flat for the day. Like we talked about, we've got materials, financials, industrials. Um, even the A shares in China are green today. So there's an emerging markets are outperforming. So there really are, I think we'd say, some positive signs where the previous leaders are just rotating to some other areas, not just an all-out sell-everything. I know what happened yesterday. That was kind of an all-out sell-everything. But today, at least, the comeback, bounce back before the holiday, is encouraging to us. And so we get to the holiday, then we're into the fall. We're into something, as you rightly described, that's sort of, you know, sort of the next normal of life. What's the next catalyst? How much are you thinking about, say, the election at this point? Yeah, I mean, the election is clearly, Jason, you know, going to be the headline. And let's not forget, an election year. September, October, historically, are the two worst months during an election year. October is actually the worst month on average during an election year. So after a 60% rally in the S&P, like I just said, there's some positive things, but a little bit more correction, consolidation after that big run would be perfectly normal. When you overlay the major bull market that started in 82 and the one that started in 2009 after the first 115 trading days where we are about right now, both of those two had huge rallies just like this one, and right about now. Now, at five and a half months, both of them have some pretty decent pullbacks. Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. There's something there, and then those rallies continued, as we all know. So we're not saying it's exactly like that. I understand this is different this time, but still, a pullback based on history makes a lot of sense when you look at seasonality right ahead of an election. Do you have a sense of how much more the tech shares have to fall, or if they have more to fall? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, gee whiz, a lot of them, at least this morning, were down, what, 10, 15 percent. I know they bounced back. But we wouldn't be surprised at all if, you know, another 5 to 7 percent or so on some of the big NASDAQ names took place here. Again, NASDAQ was up, I think, what, 67 percent off the lows so, uh, just recently. So, again, it, that makes sense. But look at the earnings season we just had. And I know, you know, look at the fundamentals, right? We saw 84 percent of companies beat earnings estimates in the second quarter, but over 90 percent of tech companies did. They've had real positive things to say. And the truth of the matter, in a low growth, low inflation, low rate world, which is still what we see here. The economy is doing better, but we still see that happening. What tends to do better in that world is growth as investors reach for growth stocks. And we still think by the end of the year, growth is probably where you want to be. I'm aware about the rotation that's happening right now, but we'd use it as an opportunity to kind of get back into some of those tech and communications uh, names that have been leaders the whole year. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think about. I mean, rotation... <clears throat> It feels like it's sort of been one of the buzzwords this week. Uh, to be sure, right. what worries you the most here, Ryan, over the balance of this year, and especially well, given the, sort of what we've seen the last couple of days? 
Yeah, Jason, I think just a sentiment, right? I know yesterday yeah. scared everybody, but on Wednesday, people were feeling pretty good. Right? Yep. I mean, I've, I've got a very close buddy of mine, an advisor here at LPL. I mentioned he's got a son who had some, you know, some very aggressive trades on Apple and doesn't quite know what he's doing. We've all heard stories like that where people are feeling really good about things on Wednesday, rightfully so. I mean, things looked really good. And then the Mr. Market comes in and does a day like yesterday and then a good day like this morning. And still, I don't want to get too geeky with this, but put the call ratios, you know, things like gamma. There's some unique things that happen in, in the options skew in the options world that are saying people are quite optimistic and we saw something like that in January. It doesn't mean we're going to have a 34% correction. We don't believe that's going to be the case, but it could suggest, again, a little more downside could be needed to flush out some of this excitement well, optimism that we've seen. But Ryan, just to get a sense of that, mm-hmm. my impression is that people are pretty sanguine about the sell-off, that they've been impressed mm-hmm. at how narrow it was and that they were frankly happy to see some sort of perhaps the beginning of rationality come back to markets. I don't get the feeling that people are spooked. Do you? No, probably not yet. And today's reversal is probably not going to help that any. So it might take a little bit more pain. And again, what we talked about in the very beginning, it might be the pain from those leaders, right? The true, yeah. the, the big cap tech specifically. That's why everybody's been parked out, just living large, having fun. Uh, so again, that's where some of these other areas, materials is a group that we've really warmed to here at LPL. We think, you know, if uh, the economy keeps coming back a little more than we think, the materials and industrials are two groups that we think can do pretty well and kind of play that cyclical trade that everyone uh, talks about. All right, Ryan Dietrich, really good to catch up with you. Always like to uh, get the view from Charlotte, Senior Market Strategist for LPL Financial. Joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina, Lisa. And listen, we're trying to make sense of it. The market did seem to kind of get a hold of itself today. I mean, we're going to finish down, but not nearly where we were earlier in the day. By the dip. I mean, that's basically what you're seeing, right? Yeah. And, and, but to me, that's, that says a lot. The fact that you can have so many people saying, this sector looks frothy. Sell, sell, sell. There's a massive amount of selling, and then people rush right back in to buy. Yeah, and people are like, no, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. Let's buy some more. Let's <laughs> buy some more. Yeah, long weekend. You know what I want? I want a hot dog. Maybe not. And Maybe not. some stocks. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.